remind you what we uh, looked at a little bit last week when um, John tells us why he's written this letter in fact he gives several reasons he says for instance in chapter 2 verse 1 one of the verses we've just read my dear children I write this to you that you will not sin but if anybody does sin we have one who speaks to the father in our defence Jesus Christ the righteous one but um, I think perhaps the key reason you could say that John has written his letter is this one I put on the slide here which is from chapter 5 verse 13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life in other words how can John's uh, readers, hearers, how can he be sure that uh, he has they have eternal life and um, remember that John also warns us against the, the scammers, the cowboy builders because he says I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray that's 1 John 2 verse 26 which we'll probably look at uh, next time, not next week as in, in July but next session and in order that we might know that might know that we have eternal life um, John gives us these three tests of what we might call true Christianity so for instance uh, he talks about obedience in 1 John 2 verse 4 this is the, what we're going to look at shortly and he tells us about love well all the way through John is always on about love it's his favourite uh, topic but for instance in, in uh, part of what we read in 1 John 2, 9 to 10 and also um, in doc he's always the third test is one of the truth the doctrinal truth as we might say the true gospel and he talks about that for instance in uh, chapter 2 verses 21 to 23 but as I uh, pointed out last week you can't really separate these out in John's thinking they're always plaited together they're always twisted together and um, though you might focus on one the others always come in as well and we'll certainly find that as we uh, look at this passage um, I think in this passage that we're uh, turning to the focus is on obedience or if you like don't like the word obedience say how can we live uh, avoiding sin how can we live as we should how can we walk as Jesus walked but as I say you can't separate them out you find that all these three things are always woven together so let's uh, look at this passage quite a long passage quite a complex passage but I do think it does have one basic theme and so it makes sense to do it all together and I'd like to look at it um, in break it down into four sub passages as I've put up on the screen there first the first one is the, the issue of sin how would a, how do we know, what do we do about sin and that's really from one verse chapter 1 verse 6 to chapter 2 verse 6 and then from chapter 2 verses 7 to 9 a shorter passage how do, are you clear where it is you're going if you're going to walk as Jesus did it's a good idea to know where you're going um, 
And then from ch uh, chapter 2, 12 to 14, are you actually getting anywhere? In other words, are you actually making any progress in your uh, journey? And then finally, is your heart set on arriving? <laughs> Do you really want to get anywhere? And I think, um, so this is why I think it is one um, continuous argument, although it's various sections. He's trying to tell us how we can not sin. He said, I'm writing to you because I don't want you to sin, but how can we do that? So let's start then. This is the longest section. If you feel it's getting a bit long, this is the longest section by a long chalk, this first one. Uh, we'll look at first from one, chapter 1, verse 6, through to chapter 2, verse 6. And I'd like to point out to you that this is a, a chiasm. Um, because if you don't see that, you'll, the, the structure may seem a little odd. Now, I do apologise. I hope you can read that. It, to get it on at all, I had to use a fairly uh, small font. And um, obviously, I couldn't... It's too long to put the whole thing out, so I've had to um, paraphrase it a bit. But I hope that this does make clear to you the structure. So in chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about walking, and he says, if we walk in the darkness... We're living a lie, so let's walk in the light. And then in verse 7 he says, But if we walk in the light, Jesus' blood purifies us. And then in verse 8, If we claim to be sinless, then we're actually living a lie. And at the centre of the, the chiasm, which in this sort of structure is always the most important part, we find that if we confess, he is faithful and just, to forgive and purify sins. That's uh, verse 9 of chapter 2, sorry, of chapter 1. And then the chiasm unwinds again. If we claim not to have sinned, we make God a liar and live that lie in verse 10. We shouldn't sin, but if we do, there's an advocate and an atonement. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. And then... John goes back to where we started. If we're disobedient, we're living a lie. So we need to walk in the light, he said at the beginning. Now he says to walk as Jesus did. And that's in chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. So you can see the structure there and how it all focuses in on this central verse that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So let's uh, see if we can unpack John's argument here a bit. So the starting point is that we should not sin, and yet, of course, we do. And this paradox lies at the heart of the Christian life. How can we walk in the light in obedience to God's command when we're naturally sinful? And if we don't walk in the light, we have no fellowship with him, as John tells us, him being God here, of course. Um, if we don't walk in the light, we can have no fellowship with God. 1 verse 6 <coughs> so how can we deal with that or can it be dealt with we, is the correct re um, response just to despair and say oh well it's a nice thought but it ain't going to work but no John says there is a solution to this problem but first of all he lists a couple of wrong answers we could just go into denial in verse 8 and we could say um, that we are without sin. We can do that in various ways. 
We can claim to be immune from sin. We can claim that sin doesn't matter. We can claim the Gnostic idea that we're now spiritual beings and that sin is a body thing. And so it really doesn't matter what we do in the... um, in, the, um, in our bodies it has no effect on our fellowship with God or in uh, verse 10 we don't necessarily claim to be immune from sin we simply claim that we haven't done it but if we make any claim like that John tells us that that's called God a liar because God has said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and it's to exclude God's word from our lives. Now somewhat bizarrely, you may be aware that some verses in John have actually been used to, to justify some perfectionist teaching, the view that it's possible to live without sin, at least for believers, if you reach some higher spiritual plateau. But how anybody can claim that when John quite clearly says, if we claim we don't sin, we make God a liar, is quite beyond me. It's clearly he, John is not teaching anything like that at all. And in fact, what he's saying is to walk in the light is to bring our sins under God's light as his word and to, to look at his word as it shows us what we really like. Because we might have gone into denial, into denial if we just didn't look too hard. But when we look at God's word, he shows us what we really like. And then we will begin to turn away from sin, which is what John wants us to do. But in fact, we might despair because our fellowship with God is already broken. So is it worth the effort? But at the centre here, we have God's solution to this problem. There is a sacrifice in verse 7. There is an atonement and a counsel for the defence chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 and at the centre here of the chiasm we have that uh, hub the crucial part if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness so let's look at this central verse here what does he actually say first of all notice it's conditional if we confess our sins if we go around in some sort of denial saying we haven't sinned, we don't sin then it doesn't apply to us but if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and that's quite a remarkable claim actually he doesn't just say if we do that God will say oh well never mind it's all right." Uh, try again do better next time that's not what he says he says that if we confess our sins he is both faithful and just to forgive us our sins what's faithful why is he faithful because he keeps his covenant promise to his people remember the word says that even if we are faithless he is faithful because he cannot deny himself He keeps faith with his people because he said that he will bring them through through to the the promised land. 
And um, that it says he's also just. And that seems even more strange, doesn't it? So if you turn up in court and say, yeah, I'm sorry, you are, no, I did it. Um, you know, I'm guilty. Then is the judge just in saying, oh, well, okay, I'll let you off then? Of course he's not. But it says here that he is just to forgive our sins. Why is that? Because the penalty of sin has already been paid. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from us from our sin. The penalty is paid and the power of sin is itself weakened so that we should do better next time around. And so we need to avoid both errors. First of all, the error that says that we have no sin, but also the error that says that we cannot make progress in holiness. Uh, top lady puts it in his hymn, Rock of Ages, Be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. We're going to sing that hymn at the end and for that reason. Because it makes the point very clearly there. So, we're to walk as Jesus did, but we don't have to work, work it out for ourselves. After all, being holy just means being set apart, being different, and you can be different in all sorts of ways. And some forms of holiness are harsh and fanatical, aren't they? We see that in, uh, well, we see that in some forms of religion. I won't name names, perhaps, but uh, where... Um, there's no forgiveness there, just fanaticism, just uh, standing up and uh, saying, I'm right and the rest of you are wrong. And some forms of holiness are so earthly, heavenly-minded as to be no earthly use, aren't they? People just wander around in a sort of spiritual daze, talking to God all the time. And, uh, you know, it's a wonder they don't get run over because they're not aware of what's going on around them. But we don't have to sort of guess what form of holiness it is that God requires because we've got an example to follow, that of Jesus himself. And Jesus was the one who campaigned, didn't he, for the highest moral standards. We've been looking at what he said about divorce and uh, murder and things like that. And yet, this one who campaigned for the highest moral standards was friends with at least two women of very dubious reputation. Um, he was friends with two tax collectors who were probably dishonest and certainly would have been Roman collaborators. Not very respectable people. His brand of holiness, he was never drunk or gluttonous, and yet he liked dinner parties, at least he seemed to go to a lot of them. And... Um, he was concerned when a wedding party ran out of wine that the, uh, the party would be uh, spoiled. That's the sort of holiness that Jesus requires when we walk as he walks that spreads the love of God around us as Phil was just playing, praying. It doesn't uh, just apply as we meet here but it spills out to those around So, we're to walk as Jesus walks and that raises the question then 
Are you clear where you're going? Chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. Have you got the right map? I suppose nowadays I should ask you, have you got your sat-nav tuned in? But I, I won't say that. I say, have, have you got the right map? In verses 7 and 8. Um, turn back. He says, have you got the, the old map, the one that you were given at the beginning? It's the gospel that you were preached from the beginning. That's the root map you need. And yet, although it's the old map, it's also the new map. It's also thoroughly up to date. It's the new commandment. Because the commandment is to walk in the light. And that's the command they heard from the beginning. It's not this newfangled gospel that the heretics were preaching. There's always somebody who's prepared to come along with a new gospel. And yet that old gospel, that old command, is uh, always new. We're told to walk in the light. We might ask what John means by the light. In fact, in John's gospel, the light usually refers to Jesus himself. But here, it's perhaps not entirely clear. It might have something to do with love, but the, the um, text suggests, the context suggests that perhaps John is talking about gospel truth as the light, um, including its moral implications for purity of life. And those who... Uh, seek God, find that the command yes it's old it's the message we heard from the beginning yet it's the command that's always new let me read to you from uh, Lamentations don't bother to look it up I'll, I'll just read it out to you Lamentations of course was written by the prophet Jeremiah I will remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is God to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. So Jeremiah remembered the old covenant, the uh, promises that were given to Abraham and to Jacob and to David. And he says that those compassions are not old, they're not something in the past, but they're new every morning and therefore I will have hope. So we have a map that's um, the old map and yet it's the map it is always up to date as the word of God sheds its light on our path. And um, one other thing John mentions here, don't travel at night. So in verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. John's Gospel, we read John 11, 9 to 10, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? This was when he was questioned about his travel plans. 
He answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. But the light of the gospel is already shining around, as John tells us here. It's already shining its light on our path. So we don't have to stumble in the darkness. We can see the way to go. But uh, John reminds us not to travel at night. Wait till you can see where you're going through the light of the gospel and sheds God's light when you walk. So, okay, those are the travel instructions. Are we actually getting anywhere? (coughs) Are we making progress? And we have these um, in verses 12 through to 14. We have this repetitive section here. Um, There is one thing that's not clear in our... um, our translations, there is actually a tense change. The first two, uh, first two verses, three, three people from 12 through to the end of 13, are, let's get this right way around, are in the present tense. Uh, the second triplet, the second three, are actually in the, well, I always tense, so I'm no Greek scholar, but I believe that means something like something, event that has a continuing significance, although it may have happened earlier, I think that means something like that English doesn't have a aorist tense so we either have to use the causes problems for translators um, but uh, we either have to use the present tense or the perfect tense and the NIV has chosen to use the present tense all the way through some, uh, some translations use the past tense for the second three but there is a change of tense and perhaps he's emphasizing again that this command is still the message is both new and old it's something that was in you were told in the past and yet it is a message that is also new and up to date so we get these three categories of people here um, some commentators including such noteworthies as Luther and Calvin in fact think that the children refers to all believers and that they're divided into two categories the young and the old but the contrast with the fathers there seems to me to make that um, reading a little strange so I think I go with John Stott here who says that there are actually three categories here Uh, let's make a couple of points he's clearly not only referring to to men I was going to, I didn't get around to it I was going to ask uh, Catherine what the um, it's not here She's gone. No. <laughs> what the new NIV said, um, whether it uses gender-free language there, which it does in some cases, but uh, whether that's not, it's clearly not only referring to men anyway here, it refers to men and women, but it does use, seem to use male categories here. And there are three. Uh, but he's commentators have all agreed and I think it's fairly clear he's not just he's not talking about literal babies here he's talking about where you are in the spiritual life how far are you along how much progress have you made and um, it's interesting that in a sense of course you, you, you land up where you started do you notice that um, 
It's been said many times that you can't stand still in the Christian life. If you're not pressing forward, then you're sliding backwards. But how does it work? Well, we start as newborns with forgiveness, coming to know God in the beginning of verse 12 and the end of verse 13. Different words actually are used for children in the two, two different places. And if you look at them up in Strong, which is what Phil puts up on the board all the time, actually Strong suggests that they are just synonyms, but again, John Stott suggests actually there might be a difference in the two words that are used. In verse 12, the term, the term for children is technia, and um, John suggests that might be refer to being John Stott here, I don't mean John, the apostle here. John Stott suggests that that might mean being born into a family. So the emphasis might be there on being a new, newborn, an infant, and you're born into the family of God. Um, in verse 13, the term padia is used, and, and again, John Stott suggests that might refer to meaning somebody being a trainee adult. In other words, a child as a, a pupil, somebody who is uh, learning to growing up, starting to grow up in the faith. But be that as it may, he certainly talks about those who have started, just started on their spiritual life. And how do they start? Well, with two things in verse 12, they started. They start with forgiveness because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And then in verse um, 13c, I write to you children because you have known the Father. So we start on the spiritual life with knowing God. And where do we end up? Well, same place actually. Verse 13, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, well 14 is the same, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. So does that mean we're not actually going anywhere? Uh, far from it, I think. It's the same gospel and the same person we know. And yet that knowledge has matured. Just as a husband and wife know each other when they start their marriage, but their whole life together is about getting to know each other better, isn't it? So it is here we start with the excitement of a new love and a new intimacy with God. But we progress towards a deeper love and a deeper intimacy. It might be less exciting, but it's surely far more fulfilling as we begin to learn by experience what God is really like. Okay, so that's where we start and that's where we end, but uh, what happens in the middle? Do we have an easy ride of it? Do we just get on the bus and uh, get on the cable car and it wafts us up the hill with no effort uh, unfortunately not the path that we take is one of struggle is one of warfare the young men and women as they grow in spiritual strength remember Lord well, he says I write to you young men well, in uh, verse 14 he says I write to you young men because you are strong as we grow in spiritual strength we learn and we find in the word of God the resources to overcome the world 
Note that John uses the perfect tense here. They have overcome the evil one. He doesn't say with a bit of luck he might, or if you keep on, you know, eventually you will. He says, you have achieved victories. They've already achieved victories, perhaps here, particularly having seen through the deceits of the, the heretics, whatever it is. He says they have won significant battles, but the war is not over. The war goes on. They are present tense strong, but they continue to grow in strength as the word of God continues to live in them. So again, as we said before, it's not that the battle is ever over, not in this world anyway, and yet we do make progress. We shouldn't think that you know, we're just fighting to stay in the same place, like the Red Queen, and you have to run very hard to stay in the same place. Well, you do, but actually... Um, as the word of God grows in us, we do achieve victories, and I think it is, we should uh, not pretend otherwise. We should be looking for victory in our lives. We should be looking, to, as we get to know God better, to become more like him, and indeed if we're not, it does indeed cast doubt on whether we're really walking in the light. The war goes on, though. And then finally... John raises the point, well, of course, do you really want to get there? There's a story told about that during the Second World War, um, the physicist Heisenberg, if I remember it correctly, I think he was in a, a new, perhaps in a neutral country or somewhere for some conference or something, I can't remember the exact details, but it said he was contacted by Allied intelligence because they wanted to know if the Nazis were developing an atom bomb. And Heisenberg is said to have replied, no one discovers something they don't want to discover. That's very true, isn't it? You won't learn to play the piano or the violin unless you really want to, unless you put your heart in it, because you have to put in the hard work. You have to practice. You have to get up like an Olympic athlete when everybody else is still in bed, if you want to become a swimmer, you have to go down to the swimming pool while it's still frosty, and you have to put in the laps, put in the lengths, put in the laps of the track if you're a run runner or a cyclist. If your heart's not in it, you're not going to do it. And so John says, where is your heart set? Because true obedience proceeds from love. And so this is what he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. You can't serve two masters. What's your heart set on? Is your love for the Father or for the deceiver? People have pointed out that there's a apparent uh, contradiction here because we're told in fact in John's Gospel chapter 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his own son so how are we not to love the world and yet the term is used in both senses I think in, in the scriptures here it's, well it's clear what he says he tells us doesn't he Everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has said and does, 
comes from, not from the Father but from the world. We're not to love the world in the sense that we're not to share in its cravings and desires. Um, do you notice here that the Gnostic arguments turned on its head? The Gnostics were claiming that their desires were for the spiritual and the eternal which would not pass away. But John says, well no, actually your cravings are embedded in this world, this base cosmos of unspiritual things. In one sense he says, yes, you Gnostics are right in that the things of this world are temporary but we avoid the temptations of this world not by ignoring them but by overcoming them because God did love this world not some other world, hypothetical world God did love this world that he sent his only son and so we shouldn't love the world in the sense of uh, looking at the cravings of this world lust and the boasting and seeking, looking after things because the world in this, in this sense and its desires pass away but the man who does the will of God lives forever so where are our hearts set do we really want to arrive are we going to put in the hours if our hearts are not set on the love of God set your affections on things above so as I said there's a lot going on there but let's summarise what John's argument is and I've tried to summarise it briefly there we battle with sin and yet we always need to come back to Jesus for forgiveness but we do make real progress if the word of God is truly living in us um, and if it's not if we're not making progress then we need to ask the question is the word of God truly living in us and we need to think about that now on the other hand though, if we claim we've achieved the final victory in this life then we're going to be living a very dangerous lie but only by following Jesus walking as Jesus walked can we know that we're on the right track so I say a lot going on there but something that's a real spiritual benefit to us I thought we would uh, finish by singing that hymn I don't know whether we have a pianist oh we do have a pianist yes <laughs> uh, that well known hymn of course of um, Augustus Toplady that says be of sin the double cure save me from its grief uh, its guilt and power 705 block of ages left for me.